0: Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder, and I'm happy to be talking to Dr. Peter O'Mara from the Department of Paramedicine at Monash University. He is also from the Board of the Paramedic Network and the Board of the American Paramedics Association. Dr. O'Mara, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. So I, I wanted to talk to you, and we've talked a little bit through email. Uh, you published a paper in the journal Paramedicine that uh, the paper came out in November of, uh, of last year, so it's still a pretty new paper. Um, it's, it's called Shuffling Toward paramedic practitioners in the United States, and I, I thought this paper was fascinating. It had a lot of information that I was unaware of. So give give the listeners a little bit of an overview of what you were talking about, and then I, I want to unpack it a little bit because, as I said, there's a lot of stuff that I, I was unaware of in, uh, in your writing.
1: Thanks, Ed. Essentially, um, the paper was a response to uh, a recommendation made by NIMSAC uh, to introduce paramedic practitioners and the education that goes with it, along with things like funding and regulatory changes. But the main piece of it was to introduce or encourage a master of paramedic practice so that people could practice as paramedic practitioners at a higher, higher level than previously and to really provide for at least some paramedics a, a viable career path and And
0: certainly, there's no you know direct correlation to how American paramedics practice and how Australian paramedics practice, um, which I think tends to be the the first thing whenever you hear how systems should change as well. you know things are different in Australia, so it'll never work here in America um, I, I'm wondering what your initial response is to criticisms like that, um, and then we'll we'll start getting into the degrees and and programs and like that
1: uh, The first thing to do is. People like myself have been to the U.S. many, many times. I've visited a whole raft of ambulance services. I've been to conferences. Um, and I know a lot of other people who have. We've sent students on placement to the U.S. And in some parts of the U.S. they're now in, employing our graduates. And the feedback is that essentially patients are the same. You know, your, your society is not similar to ours. you know we're an immigrant community. we've got people from all over the world with different languages and different cultures. We're both rich modern nations. So there's not that much difference. you know there's obviously um, there's differences in some presentations. We very rarely see gunshot wounds for instance. But we still have motor car accidents, we still have <laughs> cardiac arrest and we have. Struggles.
0: And enormous spiders that
1: are <laughs> oh, you? Yeah. Well, yeah, we have a lot of snakes that bite you. but you know it's essentially the same. And the paramedics I speak to are pretty much the same. We've got the same sense of humor. Um, we get it when we talk about things despite the, the barrier of our common language. Um, when it comes to paramedic things, people really talk about the same things and understand each other quite well. And, you know, you have very good paramedics. Um, No one's disputing that. From an educational point of view, we'd say that your paramedics do an awful lot of training and get very little credit. And um, that's what I see as the injustice, that people work very hard at their jobs uh, and their education. They get Little credit, they're like not qualified to do postgraduate qualifications. They're not um, sat alongside other health professionals as equals, and uh, that's an issue. And it doesn't help things like your retention of staff, and that is a big difference between the U.S. and Australia. The um, and we have a few problems with retention, but essentially our attrition rate from our staffing and our ambulance services is around three four percent and in the u.s you know I read <laughs> you know, many only. many um... estimates of what it is and you know I've heard figures you know in the 20s twenty 20% percent or more attrition each I, year. I've and heard as high
0: as sixty percent five-year burnout
1: yeah so that's, that's yeah
0: I, I I've heard I I've heard data sets that are are phenomenally high, like more than 50%, um, which is obviously quite worrisome. And and again, one of the topics in your paper is talking about establishing a career ladder. So I want to get into into some lines from the paper here. But first, clarify a little bit about what NEMSEC is and previous recommendations that they've made. Uh, As I said, when I read the paper, um, I, I came into it. Um, much more Luddite than I'm comfortable being um, and not, I didn't know about the organizations or the, the initiatives that they tried, or in fact that there's recommendations for bachelor's degrees. Um, I'm sure I'd heard it in passing, uh, but I, I wasn't sure of the level that had been discussed. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start expanding from there.
1: Okay. Look, I, I'm no expert on NIMZAC, but um, it's a, a body created of the and field, if you like, Uh, by your federal government, and uh, they give recommendations to the various federal agencies. I forget who they report to precisely, but um, and they've made recommendations on all sorts of things, not just education, about how uh, paramedic services could be funded and regulated. And uh, in this case, it was about education and some of the accompanying enablers that would make it happen, and um, you know, the reason I responded was one because of my connections with the US. But I looked at the proposal and I thought, well, in our world anyway, this isn't particularly um earth shattering, and right. uh, it should be a no brainer. And, uh, and, and then there yeah, was the opposition I tend to that it. came out,
0: <laughs> yeah. And I, I tend to agree, and we've, we've been lucky enough to have conversations with people internationally over the years. Um, and, you know, it, it seems the default is that there's some sort of degree program, or it's understood that it, there'll be a degree program. And it feels like, and I, I hate to appeal to anecdote, but it feels like recently, only recently, have we started to kind of embrace that there should be any degree program, you know, let alone a, a master's degree and, um, you know, the ability to, to grow and have a career ladder. Um, One of the lines in your paper that I think is interesting is, and I'm quoting here from your paper, the U.S. is an outlier among high-income countries using the Anglo-American pre-hospital model where paramedics and emergency medical technicians battle to achieve tangible professional esteem and are often poorly remunerated in uncertain employment and have minimal control over their own occupation. Is that, that, that career uncertainty that we all have, do you submit that that's a function of not having degree programs or is that more there's a lot more bureaucratic concerns that kind of preclude people from having careers
1: uh look it's a complex question and um sure yeah it's not just education it's a whole lot of other things too you know you it's been pointed out to me that you have 50 states and um trying to get regulation (laughs) across 50 states is obviously a challenge but you know having said that Our country is much smaller in population, but we have states and territories just like you do. And we had similar battles with um, states and territories on getting some uniformity. So, for instance, one thing we have, along with the the British and the Irish and the New Zealanders and South Africans, is national registration of paramedics. So that's a really big Thing. And, you know, it took us a long time to get there and it will take you a long time to have some semblance of that in place, but you don't have to do everything at once. So it, it,
0: in, in a place like Australia is National Registry. So we, we have the National Registry of Paramedics, uh, obviously, and but that's not necessarily a required certification. Um, it's, it's sometimes encouraged with some sort of small pay differential in Australia is a National Registry. Like, is that a required thing? So everyone is up at the same level of education?
1: Well, the best way to describe registration in Australia is that it's administered by a central um, body of the federal government, Um, and it's part of a body that also registers doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, and a whole host of other health professions, and um, I think we're one of 15, and so it's essentially the same rules and regulations for everyone, and we sit alongside other health professionals, as equals, and um, and that body registers the individual. So I can't call myself a paramedic unless I'm registered, and I have to meet certain criteria. Right. So, them.
0: so it's somewhat centralised then.
1: Um, okay. Yeah, it is. Does
0: does that make? So and and does that make, done. I guess, staying in one place or moving to other places more difficult? I'm, 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 I'm wondering about retention, where well, I, I think here part of the problem with retention is it, it's multifaceted with salaries and education like that, but also we don't really have a lot of mobility necessarily from state to state.
1: Yeah, no, the the mobility is fairly good now. Um, there's people moving around a fair bit, but most people stay in their own state. They, they don't go outside it, but right. There is a reasonable amount of traffic and there has been for quite a few years, even before registration, because the qualifications are essentially the same. All the states and territories have degree programs, but we have three-year bachelor degrees. And then graduates from those degrees are generally employed by what we call jurisdictional ambulance services. So we have one ambulance service each for each state. some of your states you have two hundred or more. Um so I (laughs) believe. Um ish. (laughs) So that's what you know, that also makes comparisons very difficult. So people get a job with a jurisdictional ambulance service, then they do an internship, which can take anything from six to eighteen months. And then they're sort of pretty much independent practitioners. So that's at the degree level. And then, of course, if you want to specialise and go into um, what you'd call critical care transport or aeromedical or or increasingly um, primary care or community paramedicine, you need to do postgraduate studies. So by the time people come out with a a graduate diploma or a master's degree to do those specialised roles, you know, they're... From the day they started their degree, you know, they're getting up towards 10 years of experience before they're really able to practice as this more of a advanced paramedic. And uh, so there's the things that are driving it, a, the national registration, education and um, independence. And that's what I said in the article, that having a voice of your own is really important now. I'm on the board of the American Paramedic Association that's attempting to, you know, try and get paramedics to come and have a voice and have a say and talk for them. Um, In Australia, we've got about half of our paramedics in a professional association in the country. And it's quite a strong, vibrant body. And they lobby, they lobbied, for instance, for registration but they also provide services like continuing education and um, sit on government bodies and basically make a voice. They run their own journal. They, They run a whole lot of conferences and things like that. So it's more at that level that the profession engages. And it's about, as I said, getting a seat at the table. And in the US, uh, the difficulty with getting a seat at the table.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I Excuse me. I I think that a a process that is maybe a little bit more centralized um, certainly streamlines, you know, hiring and training. Um, You know, whereas here, even just one class of EMTs can have people from 19 different organizations. Um, And I, I think it's very difficult to kind of wrangle a very fragmented process. Uh, in the paper, you also mentioned, and again, quoting from it, while it's evident that the U.S. has not embraced higher education for the paramedics, there's also little paramedic-led research, and paramedics have limited professional autonomy. Uh, they've been said not to own their profession, which is, is kind of what you were getting to in, in the last conversation. Um, talk a little bit about NAEMT, because um, again, I think they're a professional organization that uh, purports to be moving the profession forward, and they're they're sort of... Uh, contravening uh, stance that degree programs uh, should not be pushed forward.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, I'm not there, so I can't speak with great authority about any particular organization, but it, it did surprise me that sure, that's fair. they opposed this proposal from NEMSAC and that there seemed to be lukewarm still on degree programs when, you know, they sort of claim at least, to um, advocate for paramedics. And, you know, the feedback I've received from what I've written has been universally positive. They'll probably change now that I've said that. Um, But paramedics have been (laughs) coming back to me and saying, oh, you got it right. You know, we do need a voice and we're fed up with people blocking us. And um, we want to move forward as a profession in our own right, and um, and that's really important because my argument is that paramedics in the U.S. too often don't have a voice of their own, and uh, they... I, I,
0: I think we, we don't tend to... EMS, others. generally. Yeah, I, I, I tend to think that EMS generally... Um, at least certainly doesn't have the appropriate voice that we have. Um, and again, something that you mentioned in your paper and something that's, it's sort of known to everybody is a lot of EMS is run by a fire department, which is, you know, fine. It's the system that we have, but it, it feels to me almost like, you know, uh, a, a guy from Italy owning a, a Chinese restaurant, you know, like, okay, you can do that, <laughs> but it, it's not particularly the, the ideal, um, it's always been interesting to me seeing professional organizations sort of make the argument that if we have to do more work, then people are going to have to do more work. And it, it feels like that's almost being used as an excuse to not improve or change the system. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. it's, It's hard to get your head around from an outsider's perspective, the way you all talk about EMS as a thing. Um, It doesn't seem like it's a real thing to me. Uh, The way I'd describe a better way to approach it is to say the paramedics, and and I include EMTs in this discussion, but the paramedics are a profession or should be a profession. And they need to develop as a profession and needs to be paramedics who drive that. And that can be unified because you're not dealing with different employers or different states. You're just saying, We're a group of professional health or health professionals who can develop our profession and lead our profession and speak for our profession. So you put that aside. The people are actually doing the work, just like nurses. Nurses and hospitals are not one thing. Right. There's nurses and there's hospitals, or wherever else they may work. And I think that sometimes in the US you muddle it all up. And you've not said, yeah, we're we're pretty good at doing that, (laughs) you know. And and then say, all right, now on the other side, you've got the agencies. Now, the agencies in the US vary enormously, as you say, you know, there's about 40 50 percent fire departments, there's people with hospitals, there's private providers, there's you know, third services, and lots of variations in between all that. and Often they're very small and fragmented. So modernizing your agencies seems to me to be a completely different argument to professionalizing your workforce. Now, now they're related. I'm not completely naive, but sure. let the agencies worry about their problems and modernize and make the, their businesses viable and all that sort of thing and let the profession develop the profession. Now, the agencies need the profession, and the better educated your actual workforce or potential workforce is, the more options you've got to modernise your agency and how it provides services. So there's interdependent, but you can't right, yeah. really say the employers speak on behalf of the profession and, you know, as much as i i think you know unions are very useful unions aren't there as professional association they're there to represent people and get better wages and conditions and all that and have a legitimate role right but it's different to a professional association of any particular profession
0: and i i I think that's probably right. I think one of the things we've, we've lacked in EMS, and, and just, just to clarify, you've used the term paramedic a lot. In Australia, uh, all EMS providers are referred to as paramedics with different levels. It's one of the separations
1: between the US and, and a lot of other countries. Is that correct? Um, in general, but I think one of the myths that I hear from the US is that you can't do anything because you've got all these volunteers. Well, so have we. A hundred, a hundred percent, we hear that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, half of our workforce is volunteers, but the volunteers aren't counted Mm -hmm. as part of the paramedicine workforce. They're counted as volunteers, and they're essentially trained to something between your emergency medical responders and EMTs, somewhere around that. Okay. They're able to give some pain relief and some, you know, four or five medications, that sort of thing. So they're, you know, they're not hopeless or anything. They're they're quite good, but they don't. Yeah, think it, of it sounds as almost it sounds
0: almost like a first responder versus. Yeah, it, it sounds almost like first responder versus uh, what we currently have as paramedics, but just, I just wanted to clarify that. But, yeah. um, I, I think this discussion is important. Um, I'm really, really happy that, you know, we're, you're able to get it published in a journal so that now it's, it's out and it's discoverable. I feel like this conversation has existed, uh, for a long time. Um, sort of in the shadows a little bit more than I, I think either of us would like it to be. So I, I'm always excited to see more, more stuff coming up. Um, Peter Amara, thanks so much for joining me. And uh, I'll be right back with Lou Imperatrice. Thanks, Ed. This episode of the Overrun Podcast is brought to you by Team Life. Your hands can save a life. Learning how to perform high-quality CPR can be the difference for someone experiencing cardiac arrest. Team Life offers CPR certification classes throughout New Jersey that are taught by trained professionals. Sign up today for CPR certification classes at teamlife.com and learn the skills necessary to save a life. Anyone can be a hero. Now back to the show. All right. We're back on the Overrun Podcast. I'm here with Louis Imperatrice. He is the National Director of Clinical Excellence for Daco. Lou, thanks for coming on.
2: Sure. No problem. I'm just going to correct you there. I'm National Manager. Uh, National Manager. (laughs) Um, A a mutual colleague and a good friend of ours, Les Polk, is our National Director. Okay. yeah, Sorry, (laughs) Sorry, Les. That's my fault. (laughs) So a couple minutes ago, I,
0: I talked to Peter O'Mara about his paper in paramedicine, and he talks about uh, other programs, other countries having degree programs and a clinical ladder for paramedics. And uh, Lou, you and I have talked about this plenty off air. Um, you've written in GEMS a couple times about the, the progress that EMTs and paramedics have to make. Um, you, you know, you're know, you involved in a very large United States EMS organization. And just to start, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the presence or absence of a clinical ladder and how you feel about EMS workers getting degrees, master's degrees, and I, I guess where we're at and where we would ideally like to go.
2: So I think that the absence of a clinical ladder and the absence of uh, undergraduate or graduate degrees in paramedicine is is detrimental to our field. Um, you look at most healthcare clinicians and professions; there is uh, lateral upward movement. There's clinical ladders, whether it be um, through degree programs or through uh, healthcare system based training, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's movement up. But when it comes to EMS, what what my take and my view is, is that uh, you get your initial certification, say, as an EMT, maybe you go to paramedic school, whether it be a um, associate's program or a technical program, and then you kind of plateau from there. And then we wonder why on a high level, we're losing clinicians and we're losing professionals in this field, because once you become a paramedic, Where do you go from there? Nursing school. You go to nursing (laughs) school or you go to physician's assistant school um, and you become a nurse and you work, you know, as as a clinical nurse. And then you go through the career ladder. You can get your bachelor's in nursing. You can then get your master's in nursing. You can go to nurse practitioner. Um, You become a PA. You can become a specialized PA. And there's upward movement. And we kind of have a ceiling above us in EMS, which I think is just uh, uh, one of the major Detriments to our profession, and I and we
0: certainly see, you know, a, a, the average attrition rate is between five and six years, and there's, you know, there, there's a million variables that we can say that that you know, cause those things. I, I guess the the principal question is is this something? Is this almost like a, an undercorrection? I guess for EMS, where you know we saw nurses and fire departments develop these ladders, and for EMS, because we saw people leaving the industry we sort of correct be like just get out just get your certification just just go out there just go onto the into the field and we didn't really take the pains to adjust like all right well after they get into the field then what? Uh,
2: abs- uh absolutely. Um so when we get into EMS everybody loves it. I, I still practice clinically in the field as a per die medic because I love it, but I got out of full-time practice in the field because there was nowhere for me to go. Um and and it's a shame because I know so many great paramedics who struggle financially, socially, emotionally, because there's there's no place for them to go. And what can we do about it? Well, I can't go get a degree or a master's degree or a bachelor's degree to uh, become an advanced practitioner. I can't go get a, you know, a, a master's degree in in EMS management to become a supervisor or a director or a manager. Um, you know, an MBA is great. Sure, go get your MBA. But we all know that EMS uh, leadership is a whole different field than traditional business degrees. Yep. Um, so we, we we limit ourselves, really, in my opinion. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of people who are very comfortable, and they love being a paramedic, and that's what they do. But there's a lot of people who, for their self-fulfillment, um, whether it be financially, just because they like to, or just because they want to, um, they don't have anywhere to go. And then we see them leave the field, and then we it just comes full circle. So we keep asking ourselves, what can we do to um, keep people in the field? We'll give them sign-on bonuses, uh, a trip, um, longevity bonuses, et cetera, et cetera. But that's all temporary. Right. Um, people want to feel fulfilled um, and not just fulfilled in taking care of a sick patient. They want to feel fulfilled in their career and use their skills i mean i know so many paramedics who their skill sets are just uh, immense but there's nowhere for them to go because they don't have that degree they can't go right. into the healthcare system because i don't have a master's degree they can't um you know so they're limited so i think i think we're our own worst enemy in this in this aspect
0: and and certainly you know if you've seen we we've talked previously you know if you've seen one emf system you've seen one ems system um, exactly you know and just the differences in you know, in, in the state we're in, we're, we're both in New Jersey, um, you know, systems vary and change. And, you know, your neighboring town might be a fire department, which might be next to a town that's hospital based, which might be next to a town that's volunteer based. And all of that might be next to a state that has an entirely different system altogether. Um, so I, I think there's one of the problems is that and, and Dr. Omira Omira and I talked about this uh, a couple minutes ago, where It's difficult to try to implement change into a system when the system is so fractionated as it is. Right. One of the things he mentioned in Australia is they kind of had a national program come along and say, this is how paramedics are going to be educated. And this is what their their career ladder is going to be. And I I wonder if. I wonder what your thoughts are on trying to implement a system like that at a state level, or is that something that has to start with federal intervention or where, where can we start, I guess, whether it's with professional organizations like NAEMT or anyone else to, if there's already documented recommendations out there to get bachelor's degrees, to get master's degrees, and we're already not doing it, right? How do we start, I guess, culturally making that shift where, you know, NEMSAC is saying we should have bachelor's degrees and master's degrees. A lot of other places are encouraging additional education. We, you know, we take the nursing model where they have career ladders. We take the FIRE model where they have continuing education and career ladders. So we we have, we have, it feels like we have rubrics for how to do it and we have recommendations for how to do it and we're we're just not. So aside from just, you know, I I don't want it to sound, you know, like whinging or like bitching, but, you know, it, it feels like if we have the tools to do it, Is it a, I guess, is it a lack of will or does it come down to, we need to get the right people in place or to to your mind, speaking as a a manager of a large organization, I guess, how do we reduce that friction and kind of start moving everyone toward what would make the practice better?
2: So I I think we have to kind of look at this from several prongs. So like you mentioned, EMS is, um, where I'm at is private base and the town next door to me, maybe fire department based. Um, and that's all well and good. But if you look at it from a healthcare system, as a healthcare system, every hospital is different, but they're all the same. Uh, they all have a general similarity to how they run their system. Sure, there are their quirks and their nuances, but you know, you go to a hospital in New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, California, it's generally run the same. Um, And I think that one of the biggest things is the lobby. Nursing unions, there's nursing lobby, there's federal lobby on the nursing level, uh, there's federal funding for hospitals, there's federal funding for healthcare systems, state funding. Um, We don't have that in EMS. We don't have a federal lobby. Sure, we have the NAEMT who lobbies, but There's no money like there is in nursing. There's no money like there is in the FMBA or the IAFF, these these massive, almost billion dollar lobbies. We don't have that. So we need money. We need federal money to, I don't want to say organize, but federal money to support this. We need leaders who are... Uh, not old school boys club type leaders. We need modern day leadership in EMS who understand that we have to run this like a business um, and a modern business. You know, I I, I wrote an article, of, you know, EMS and its uh, disconnect from modern day leadership. I mean, we still run EMS systems like the 70s and 80s. Um, back back <laughs> in the good old days. Exactly. And we, we need... Young, educated leaders who are educated specifically in this field, Um, we need federal lobby, a big lobbying organization. And I don't want to use the the U word union, um, but and I don't think we need EMS union, but we need a significant lobby who has political clout, who can say, listen, Medicare reimbursement rates suck. right? Attrition sucks. We need education. We need money for education because I think every school should have some type of master's degree or bachelor's degree in EMS or emergency management, whatever you want to call it. But where's the money coming from? Right. Um, We need money, we need lobby, and we need modern day leaders to emphasize education.
0: And I wonder there's a couple of programs that are out there that are, are certainly popular among EMS workers for degree programs, whether it's leadership, emergency management and like that. And I, I feel like and this is anecdotal. I don't I don't have program data in front of me, um, but it feels like a lot of the emergency management training programs seems to be more like a lot of mass casualty stuff um, going through, like, you know, FEMA and federal bureaucracy, which is important. But I, I don't know that and and i tend to agree that the reality is that medicine is a business. um i think there's a divide between your your standard business practice and what you see in EMS and what you see in medicine that i think needs to be kind of countered for like if you were a standard mba i'm not sure that going in to be a, an operations supervisor would be uh would be super effective for you. but i i wonder if we're at a space where generationally we have hired managers who've hired managers, who've hired managers who've hired managers and kind of embrace that, you know, this is the way we've always done it thing, and haven't quite taken the pains to find people in positions or who have been trained for leadership. And it, you know, the, the differences are subtle and certainly we, you and I could go on for hours about how uh, leadership education has failed. But to your mind, I, I, I guess I want to ask what's that delineation between just managing, you know, treading water, keeping everything afloat and moving over to a more leadership minded type of practice.
2: So, I think education is is a big part of that and a start but you you know no matter what you learn in school it it takes being somebody who understands people and understanding how your decisions affect people's daily lives um we can't just look at our balance sheet and make you know every decision on our balance sheet because it's financially the best decision we have to remember that these are people's lives we're dealing with and and a leader who understands that who understands that you know, this EMT who's working for me leaves here to go work another job, who leaves there to go work a third job just to put food on the table. What can I do to make his life better? So it comes at the expense of a new ambulance that year because, you know, we spent the money on our people instead of spending the money on getting a new contract or buying new ambulances, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) It it takes- Booking mandatory overtime. Exactly. It, It takes understanding people and understanding the individual needs- of your people. Um, I work for a company that has 7,000 employees and I can honestly say that our CEO uh, probably doesn't know every single one of them by name, but, uh, would take a phone call from me or any one of our field employees or anyone right now to his personal cell phone. Um, and it, it takes that, you know, where I work for agencies where I had to you know, 150 employees and I had to schedule a meeting to have a five minute conversation with the director. Yeah, I mean, here I have a, a CEO of a, a Almost billion-dollar publicly traded company who would pick up the cell phone if I called him right now to ask him a question, and I think that's the big disconnect. Like you said, manager hires manager hires manager. What management experience does that person have? Where they oh you know they were a a good paramedic and they they became a a field supervisor who made sure everyone's shirt was tucked in and you know and everybody did the exact thing they were supposed to do, and now they are a manager versus the person who's you know a good medic but is loved by the staff maybe doesn't have the management experience, but we can send him to school to get that. We can send right. him to training, um, you know, to get that back end management. I think experience. that's,
0: that's an important thing that I think is missed a lot too. Cause something that I, I tend to hear at least again, and anecdotally <clears throat> is I tend to hear that, you know, we can only hire who applies. And this is something that I've, I've kind of railed against for, for years because I, I tend to not think that's true. Um, if you have if you're in a position where you're you know making hiring decisions and you have four candidates in front of you and none of them particularly meet either the qualifications or the personality type you're looking for you're under no obligation to hire that employee now I I, I don't know what the pressure is from you know from up top so like if you have a director or a CEO who's like no you will hire someone on Tuesday I, I can understand that kind of disconnect but I I feel like a lot of it like I said, it, it, it feels like treading water, right? Mm-hmm. Where, all right, a manager is left. We've got to put someone new into that position. Um, and a lot of times I think people and it, also staff has no idea what the the, the pay differential is between management <laughs> and staff, which is often like, you know, two to five dollars an hour. It's not it's, it's not it, it's, it's not like managers are living high on the you, hog.
2: You, you, you probably working an overtime shift a week as a field paramedic, you'll make more money than the probably more than your supervisor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that that I, I I hate simplifying it so much that, you know, money
0: talks and bullshit walks. But it feels like that's kind of the position that we're in, right, where we want to hire these people. We do. I think the industry does want to have leaders. They do want to have people who want to move the industry forward. It's just really difficult to do that if you're offering someone sixty five thousand dollars a year to run a division that has you a know, thousand employees. I, you know, I so I aside from lobbying, I, I'm not sure how we generate the income for systems to be able to do that and also convince the systems that it's a worthwhile pursuit, you know? So I I think we've spent the past, I mean, now in 2024, 50, 60 years uh, kind of building this wall of separation between management and staff. And now we've realized, Oh, this isn't the way to do it.
2: So um, I didn't mean to cut, I didn't mean to cut no, you No, you're fine. Go ahead. What I, uh, One thing that I've always kind of lived by was that, uh the highest level person in the room the director the ceo the ceo whatever you want to call them should be and don't take this the wrong way but should be the dumbest person in the room mm-hmm. that a great leader surrounds themselves with people who are smarter than them because no you know i'm not a subject matter in every field or everything right but i surround myself with subject matter experts uh in the room so that when there's something comes up, I defer to them. So like the model that uh, we use here is is we have several of our EMS markets across the country where the business leaders have zero EMS experience whatsoever, but they've all run successful businesses yep. um, and they have zero input into the operation of the EMS system. They're all highly educated businessmen and they have directors of operations, managers of operations, who make those decisions for them. And I think that's where we failed in EMS is that we just promote ourselves up through the ranks, you know, medic, supervisor, coordinator, manager, director, what business experience does that person have? You know, what experience do they have to, to? you know, they may be a great field operations supervisor or a field operations director, but they, they don't know the difference between Top line revenue and and you know an EBITDA at the end of the day and that's
0: and that's ignoring the reality that EMS is often a loss leader for for yeah, every and that, organization and that,
2: and that goes right back into the point why it is it is so important that we need high level education in our field. And I think it should be two-pronged. There should be two tracks of education in EMS, the clinical education, because there's people who just don't want to deal with the bullshit of leadership, and they just want to expand their clinical scope. Um, We can keep people out of the hospital by having advanced practice paramedics who are Mm -hmm. doing mobile health visits, who are doing care gap closures, who are doing all of that. But you know, a a regular, I don't want to say run of the mill paramedic is not trained or educated to do that. So there's that track. And then there's the management track where you learn the nuances of this specific industry to become a leader in this industry. Um, I think that's where we have failed is just promoting up through the ranks instead of going out and finding the experts that we need. You know, you don't need to be a paramedic or, you know, to run a successful EMS agency. Do you need to be a great paramedic to be a successful operations manager? Absolutely. Do you need to be a, success, a great paramedic or even a paramedic at all or an EMT at all to run a successful business? No. And that's that's where we failed, um, in my opinion. And I, I think it's
0: interesting to have someone to come in and, and kind of call balls and strikes and then, you know, I, I've noticed this deficiency. How do we fix it? And then talk to the industry people. I think that's an interesting approach. Um, And, you know, I certainly we've we've talked that uh, in the industry, we often don't know uh, what we're doing. But, you know, as far as trying to improve the EMS industry is concerned when it comes to leadership and management, career ladders and all that. I I feel like uh, the common refrain that I hear from people is that we can't do it because it's hard. And to that I say anything worth doing uh, rarely is easy. So Lewis and Paratrice from DACO, thank you so much for your input. I appreciate it. And I'll be right back in a couple minutes with final thoughts. Thanks, Ed, for having me. And welcome back to my final thoughts on the topic today. So during this, during this episode, we talked a lot about career growth, whether it's a degree program, a bachelor's program, a master's program. And I think the important thing is just to kind of focus on career growth and trying to get EMTs and medics to further in their career. One of the things we don't talk about enough are the side effects, culturally, that we have of not trying to get people to advance. There is a story out in Rochester, as I'm recording this a little over uh ten days ago where a couple EMTs were assaulted by a patient and let the patient walk out and then the patient died on the sidewalk in front of them. Um, they resuscitated the patient, the patient died in the hospital nine days later. And while it is important that we maintain our own safety, I think that not caring for that patient, while abandonment is never acceptable, I, I think that has a lot to do with the burnout that we see because we are not nearly as appreciated as we should be. When workers come into work, they should be walking into a safe environment where they know that they'll be able to leave the shift at the end of the day um they should be paid fairly they should have you know we should have ample time to eat and we should be able to have time to ourselves in the shift and we shouldn't be used as commodities where we can just fill the next available shift we're entering a phase in ems where we have a paradigm change that we really have to deal with and it can start from the bottom or it can start from the top but We do have to change the expectations that we have for EMTs and paramedics. And where it starts is with us. We have to try to argue for a career path. We have to try and argue for a career ladder. We have to have people who have degrees, who have taken the time to educate themselves about how businesses work and how healthcare as a business works and how we as EMTs and paramedics can take the same path that firefighters and police officers and nurses have taken where there's a career path to what we're trying to do. It's not going to be easy. Uh, I think it will be difficult. It is going to take all of us kind of in a collective effort to try to improve our field and improve our vocation and improve our profession. It's something that we have to work very hard to do, and I think that we have it in us to do it. We all just have to accept that education is not something to shy away from. It is, in fact, something that we should be focusing on and pursuing and trying to grow our field. If you like what we had to say today, if you like the interview, be sure to subscribe down below, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and everywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm excited to hear what you all think. And for the overrun, my name is Ed Bowder, and we'll talk to you next time.